Welcome back to Presidents in Politics. I'm one of your hosts, Professor Kayla McGee, joined with my fellow co-host, former Congressman Ross. And uh, we've been before the show laughing and saying this is a bit of a challenging one. One of the things we run into when we do a podcast on every president is you run into those lesser known presidents. And there are a few. Oh, my goodness, yes. And you run into presidents that were kind of, I don't know if this sounds harsh, but kind of a failure, both domestically and internationally. And in some ways, Martin Van Buren kind of was. He was. He, uh, he, he was kind of just a little blip on the, uh, the timeline of American history. Emphasis on little, right? Yeah, very much. <laughs> Five foot six. They called him the little magician. Yeah. Or but the, a great dresser. Yes. And a yes. very smart man. Oh, very clever. Politically savvy. Yes. In That's fact, a, uh, they say that uh, he, he was self-taught as a, as a lawyer and at age 15 was given uh, by his mentor an opportunity to do a trial summation and won the trial. Yes. And thereafter became a distinguished lawyer practicing yes. with his brother-in-law in New York. I, Which, mean, I mean, in modern America, you're getting your learner's permit. Yes. <laughs> and, and he's doing guy, like closing statements in front of a jury. Yes. And is now respect. And again, this I think this is important. I always do this in my like political psychology classes. It shows the delayed adolescence in America. Which, if we're delaying our adolescents, maybe then we're delaying the maturity of our politicians, which is maybe why we have 80 and 90 year old politicians. <laughs> <laughs> Not that they're that mature. Um, uh, well put. But as you begin to see these young men, they're already having these incredible responsibilities in life as teenagers, so they become better leaders early on. I think yes, that's something we need to get back to. And consider his influence. You know, his father had a tavern in New York that mm. uh, was frequented by Aaron Burr and Alexander, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. Yes. And, and it's said that, that Martin Van Buren slept in the loft over it. And you know he had to probably listen to a lot of their discussions mm -hmm. on the Federalist Papers and the creation of the country and what its intended purpose was as a Republican form of democracy. And so he, he, he had it in him, I say. And, and yes. he was the first U.S.-born citizen, citizen yes. to become president. Yes, yes. And uh, what a great history, though. You know, he was he, he was determined mm -hmm. that he wanted to do this. He always loved politics. Uh, he served in the, the, the state Senate in New York. Um, he served in the U.S. In fact, not only did he serve in the U.S. Senate, but he started the, what was it, the Alba, Albany yes, Regency? which was later, it was first called, I'm writing this down, it was first called the Holy Alliance, I want to say, yeah. as I was researching this. And he is this Holy Alliance, which was then later changed. You see this idea where he had this—he had this ability to unify a fracturing party. Yes. Because the Democrat Party, of course, Jackson kind of starts it. He's kind of the father of it. But Jackson wasn't going to unify anyone. No. I he mean, he was going. He can't even unify his own cabinet. You're right. Right. And Van Buren, because the reason why they call him the Little Magician is because he was so politically savvy, he could unify people. And what Van Buren really started was the modern idea of politics of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, which Correct. of course that's ancient, that's in Sioux. But the idea was is that if I can unify all of my party against this party. We can still be fractured, but the number one thing is let's beat them. And that's modern politics. It's and he's the one who starts today. this. I mean, eighth president, we're already to this. Not only – yeah, and he's, he's one of the founders of the Democratic Party. Yes. And, and because of that ability to, to coalesce his party people in a machine, a political machine, yes. he's able to get Andrew Jackson elected president. And Jackson doesn't forget that. Yes. And appoints him as the secretary of the state. The first term and then the VP the second term. Yeah. And now he's – at the time he's appointed secretary of state, he had already just been elected governor of New York. Yes. But only serves for 12 weeks to go become secretary of state. Most political scientists believe that the only reason why he took the governorship of New York was in order to secure – more votes for Andrew Jackson. So the entire it was it worked. But the entire mindset of Van Buren is basically the White House, right. and he uses the New York uh, local government, state government, in order to step into federal politics. So he was never more than likely planning on holding that position as governor. This whole thing's a stepping stone. Yes. And as you said, you kind of see his drive because his father is a poor tavern keeper. 
His grandfather, his father's grandfather, so his great grandfather was an indentured servant. I didn't know that. From the Netherlands. So you got the American dream. The, the indentured servant from Netherlands, his great grandson will become the president of the United States. Wow. There's the American dream. It is. You can come here with nothing, an indentured servant, like working through slavery, and your great grandchild sits in the highest office yeah, of the land. Is that not amazing? That's what that, I love about America. Yep. The American dream. Yes. And he, you know, interesting too. He he uh, he married his cousin, <laughs> which the Roosevelts did that too. Oh yes, the so, Roosevelts. I mean, yeah, there's some yeah. inbreeding in the White House. We kind of always well, known that. You know, <laughs> uh, but his wife unfortunately died after yes. 12 years. They did have four children. Yes, and uh, he never remarried, Mm-mm. and uh, st- stuck stuck with his passion in politics. Yes, uh, I, I find it interesting because you know when we talked about Andrew Jackson uh, last time. We talked about you know John Calhoun was his vice president, mm-hmm. who also sat as president of the Senate. And him and Calhoun always had battles. And so uh, Jackson sees this mistrust of his cabinet, and he's, he has in, um, uh, Martin Van Buren in his cabinet as Secretary of State, and Van Buren says, look, you need a new cabinet. I'll resign, forcing all the other people to resign. Yes. And that's what happens. So Jackson gets a new cabinet, and in an effort to reward Van Buren for his loyalty to him, he appoints him to Minister of Great Britain. Mm-hmm. But... John Calhoun, as the president of the Senate, is the the descending vote that keeps him from getting appointed. Yes. So it's just that the internal politics going on back then. But Jackson runs for re-election and gets rid of Calhoun as his vice president, and Martin Van Buren becomes the vice president of the United States. Yes. Under this administration, it's interesting too because Van Buren uh, was with was was with Jackson in wanting to get rid of the central bank, the Bank yes. of the United States. Yes. Which they ultimately did, mm-hmm. and they took their deposits from there and they put it in state banks. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, as you know, it led to the, uh, the panic the, of eighteen thirty seven. Yeah. And I think as we look at this this idea of the panic of eighteen thirty seven. Um, I think this is an interesting time to kind of pause and talk about the economy for a moment. Uh, one of the first things I was ever asked to interview when I came on, and I was the, the my first semester as the uh, political science director, whatever my title is, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> they interviewed me on the Bill O'Reilly show, and it was actually in the yeah. same studio. And they were talking about the midterm elections of 2022, and was the economy enough to swing the midterm elections of 2022? And I came out and I boldly said, yes, I believe 100 percent there will be a lot of seats lost. And we, we talked about different uh, midterm elections. 1838 was one of them. And obviously I was wrong and they've never asked me back. So that was the, <laughs> that was the end Don't of worry. my political pundancy <laughs> career. It was it was very short lived. But nonetheless, um, as we looked at this, there was a major shift in Congress because of this economic downturn. I believe it was seven Senate seats and 16 House seats. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really interesting as you look throughout American history. Unless it's a time of major war, the economy is the number one determining factor of happiness with voters with their elected leadership. Yes. And as we look at this panic of 1837, in many ways, it was the it was the undoing uh, of Van Buren. I believe that's why he did not have a second term. I think term. you're absolutely right. I think and as we look at today's time, the economy probably is one of the worst we've ever had, specifically in the area of inflation. So you have to ask yourself... How is this going to affect the election going into it? And what would be one of the primary fixes for the economy? Just your thought as someone who's Well, been... you know, once, once the government gets involved in monetary policy and uh, fiscal policy, then they have to stay in the game. Yes. And, and, and they become not only the referees as regulators, but they also become some of the players. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what was developed with the central bank that they had under Jackson that they got rid of. And they put the money in the state banks, and there's nobody to regulate the monetary policy. In other words, there's nobody to regulate what interest rates are going to be. Yes. Uh, the market's going to do it, but the market is not 
uh, is not stable, mm. and it leads to these banks going under. And then Van Buren saying, well, you got to use, you know, hard gold or hard currency in order to buy anything. And that yes. worsens it. Uh, but it's interesting because I want to I want to read a quote that I thought was rather f f phenomenal because he Van Buren. Now, remember, he's the founder of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. OK, he's one of the founders of the Democratic Party. He's very he's anti-national uh, bank. But he says this in, his, in, a, in a statement that he did entitled Against Government Aid for Business Losses. And he says, all communities are apt to look to government for too much, even in our own country, where its powers and duties are so strictly limited, we are prone to do so, especially at periods of sudden embarrassment and distress. But this ought not to be. The framers of our excellent Constitution and the people who approved it with calm and sagacious deliberation acted at the time on a sounder principle. They wisely judged that the less government interferes with private pursuits, <laughs> the better for general prosperity. It is not its legitimate object to make men rich or to repair by direct grants of money or legislation in favor of particular pursuits, losses not incurred in the public service. This would be substantially to use the property of some for the benefit of others. Mm. Its real duty, however, that duty, the performance of which makes a good government the most precious of human blessings, is to enact and enforce a system of general laws commensurate with but not exceeding the objects of its establishment and to leave every citizen and every interest to reap under its benign protection the rewards of virtue, industry, and prudence. Now, I this is like by that. a man who was a founder of the Democratic Party. You would might be lucky to find that <laughs> same statement and a highly conservative yes. uh, politician today. Yes. But where we have come because of government involvement in our process is that government is the be-all to end-all. Yes. And unfortunately, both parties to this day have bought into that. Agreed. There was a, a, a French economist Economist, uh, centuries ago by the name of Frederick Bastier. I don't know if oh, yeah. or not. Okay. And he wrote the, uh, the the fictitious letter, The Candlemaker's Petition. And it's a very interesting yeah. letter. Okay, I don't know if you're familiar. Okay, you are. So he writes this letter about how all the candle makers in France, because they want to skyrocket their sales, they ask the government to basically put a roof over the towns of France and to make it illegal to keep your windows open so that they can sell more, more candles. candles. And the whole thing's fictitious, but in all reality, we kind of see the U.S. federal government doing that. They're crippling certain industries to drive up demand or to prop up a failing yes. business. And what are we left with? What Bastier would teach, and then later Adam Smith, the, Scot the great Scottish intellectual mind of the Enlightenment who wrote The Wealth of Nations, which yep. could we get back to just... The invisible hand. Right. The invisible hand. What was it? He said it's not the benevolence of the butcher or the baker, but it's their self-interest because they want to make their business work. Yeah. They want to feed their family, so they're going to advertise the best possible product with the best customer service. But if the government's propping you up, you don't have to do that anymore. And Milton Friedman proved that so well in his... Oh you know, I mean... And unfortunately, this is what we see happening in the Panic of 1837 that then Van Buren tries to, to tinker with, is that government comes in to be a, to the answer to everything. Yes. And that sets a precedent that has not changed. In fact, has gotten worse in the states I would today. say it was expanded exponentially again with FDR oh, under no the doubt. New Deal. No doubt about that. And then that. Uh, maybe Lyndon B. Johnson, the Great Society. And then, my Lord, where we are today. Yep. COVID. <laughs> oh, Goodness. What the we've government. done in response to that, you yes. know, it, it's 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 we don't want to stifle what you talked about the American dream mm. to be able to take somebody of, of meager means and and their answer their their generation that ensues follows them then becomes president or captains of an industry. Yes, one of the things that we do in the Americas that we love so much about this country is that we incentivize the opportunity to be what you were entitled to be yes. to to further your innovation to further your your passions. 
And if government is going to be the answer, then what happens to that determination? What happens to that passing? What happens to that ingenuity? What happens to that innovation? We've got to have that. That's challenging, and challenges are good. Yes. We thrive on challenges. If you look at the idea of early America, if it was the revolution, if it was the westward expansion, whatever may be taking place, it was that challenge that we were then saying, here is the, the goal, here's the means, rise to this. Yes. But if there's no longer anything to rise to, if there's no longer a frontier, so to say, right? Remember the frontier thesis? If there's, oh, no, yeah. longer, if there's no longer a frontier to come to, what are we left with? What, participation trophies? Thank you. <laughs> and you know, mediocrity. We're we going to celebrate mediocrity now. And again, speaking ahead on, on John Kennedy with the space race. You know, yes. putting a man on the moon by the end of the decade was an amazing challenge to the mm. American uh, scientific community yes. and, and aviation community, and they did it. Yes. We met the challenge. Yes. We need to excel in our challenges more and more. Yes. yes, there's defeat. Yes, there's failure. But we learn from that. Absolutely. And we need that. And if we don't have that, what are we left with? And absent that, you'll never know what success is like. I always think of when we talk about this, and again, I know we're, we're racing ahead to other presidents, maybe because it's Van Buren, there's not much to say about him. Um, but I think about Teddy Roosevelt and his Man in the Arena speech. Yes. One of my favorites, hanging on my office wall. I love the Man in the Arena speech. The idea that the man who is marred has felt victory and has felt defeat. Mm -hmm. And God bless the man who's in the stands who's felt neither. Yes. Right? That's what we need. When you talk the space race, it reminded me, actually, it's under Van Buren that there is the race to um, own Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, and this starts all the way back. I think we talked about this all the way back with John Quincy Adams. There was this there's this kind of out there scientist who believes that there's a portal in the whole of the earth and all this kind of weird stuff. And but he also believes that Antarctica is be very valuable. And John Quincy Adams really desires to start this. But he's a one term president. He can't do it. So then Andrew Jackson also says, OK, let's go explore Antarctica. What well, this time period, the Navy's in control of, of exploration mm -hmm. and the Navy stalls for eight years. Right. Because, I mean, yeah, how many they, times they, they have, have an idea yeah. and they stall them out. So basically now Van Buren says, you're going to go discover Antarctica. It was political. The whalers wanted it. The fishers wanted it. The natural resources there. The, the shipping routes there. And when, as I was researching this and thinking about this, it's interesting because we see that push for Antarctica again, specifically against China, Russia, and of course right. us because of the idea of satellite stations, the idea of, of GPS analysis, the idea of possible oil, and other natural resources here. So history repeats itself. Amazingly over so. Over and over and over. Amazingly so we have the so. Treaty of Antarctica, which was signed, what, in the 50s? Something like that? I guess. And it's yeah, controlled by like 53 nations. <laughs> <laughs> scholar used loosely. Um, controlled by like 53 nations. So it's interesting, again, as we see this, this cyclical nature of, of history. But as we look at this idea of Van Buren, he's kind of a failure, I hate to say this, domestically when we look at the economy. And remember, was it Clinton's administration that said it's the economy stupid? Oh, yeah. That was their campaign right. slogan. It's the economy stupid. Yep. And it was. But he's also kind of a failure internationally and specifically with the whole Texas affair, right? Oh, the Texas affair. The Texas look, affair. This, you know, and... and, and Van Buren, because we talk about this in all our presidents to this point, whether they're pro-slavery or anti-slavery. Yes. And and Van Buren's kind of like, well, you know, I'm with a very pro-slavery president as vice president. So what what do I do when I become president? Well, Texas wants to become the state. Yes. And but with it will come slavery. Yes. And he changes courses and says, we're not bringing Texas in. We're not going to do this quid pro quo where you bring in a slave state and a non-slave mm -hmm. state. We're not going we're going to put an end to that. So he kind of shifts on that. Um, and 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 not bringing Texas in probably was a failure on his part. Yes. But doing it for the reasons he did was probably well it was a success. Agree. Yeah, it's interesting when when you talk about this. Both Jackson and Van Buren, both Democrats, are both strong anti-federalists. Obviously, right. both of them would have opposed the Civil War. 
Yes. It's their parties. Of course, South Carolina succeeds, and it's actually they both would oppose it because Van Buren actually lives into he dies the first year of the Civil War, so he's actually still yes. alive when the Civil War starts, and he openly condemns it. I mean, he's like on his he's weak, he's kind of on his deathbed, so he doesn't carry a lot. But it's interesting; it's their party that starts the Civil War, and they're still the whole time like the major founders, and we don't want this. So you see how quickly I guess where I'm going with this is you can see how quickly a party can completely deteriorate from the founders and go somewhere totally different. Absolutely. I think we see that a lot now. Yeah. Look at the roots of both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and then look at what we have today, and they are miles away. It makes you wonder if somebody like, you know, Eisenhower would have been considered a, a Democrat today, or, or you That's know, a, I mean, you don't yeah. know, because the, the the parties change so much, but the character and, and political philosophies of, the, of the, the, the candidates from back then don't. And so you, it, it's, I guess it's whatever sells, Caleb. I believe... Correct me if I'm wrong here. I think one of the the clearest ways to see if a politician is, if we can use the term conservative or not, is probably on their economic response. Yes. Even more than moral, because I think a lot of times politicians judge what's the moral standing of society, and they try to go along with that. But if you watch their 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 feelings with the economy, how conservative, how fiscally conservative they are, I think you can really judge at the heart of how conservative they are. I think you're absolutely right, and I think you know the prevailing winds are what helps perpetuate their time in office. Yes. And you know, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing if you want to just perpetuate your career there, but I am saying that for the good of the country, that's not the good thing. Yeah. And 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 what we need to see is more political fortitude. Yes. You know, for lack of, of his terrible uh, mistakes he made, Andrew Jackson was a man, as you said, great. Principled. And principled and, yes. and did his thing. Yes. And, and Van Buren was like, okay, 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 I, I guess I'll go this, I'll do that. I, I don't know how to handle the economic situation. I don't know he how was to a handle flip-flopper. He very much was a flip-flopper, and it showed in his re-election. We lost miserably yes. uh, to William Henry Harrison. I wrote that down, and I, I'm trying to remember what it was. He, I think he only carried seven states, mm. which, I mean, there was only 26 at the time. He carries seven states, and he gets 60 electoral votes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been some sound defeats in, in political, especially presidential runs, but right. this has got to be one of the worst. And again, we have to bring it in proportion because there's only 26 states, so it's not the full 50. But nonetheless, this was a sound defeating. Oh, it was. Now, he comes back and he tries to run against James K. Yes. Uh, not James K. Polk. Yeah, he, he, yeah. He, mm -hmm. he, he tries to run against uh, uh, Tyler uh, as the anti-slavery Democrat. Oh, the Free Soil Party. And then the Free Soil mm -hmm. Party, yeah. Yes. And, and unfortunately... Free soil, free land, free men. So these former presidents coming back and running again is not unusual for American no. history. We saw it in Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. You know, we see it in Martin Van Buren. Yes. We see it in Donald Trump. I would say it seems like it's more disenfranchised presidents who come back and run again. Yes. Your thought on that. I, I really do. Like, you think about Van Buren, think about even John John Quincy Adams. Yeah. Uh, which, granted, he went and worked in, in Congress, not in the, in the presidency. Died in Congress, yeah. Uh, but none of, yeah, died in Congress, worked away. But it seems like if they have, if they're a one-term kind of disenfranchised president, their desire to come back, reinvent themselves and come back, you see that over and over and over again throughout history. Um, before there was the presidential term limit, you don't see a lot of two-term presidents trying that. Obviously, it's, you can't now. Right. But before there was a presidential term limit, you don't see a lot of like successful two-term presidents trying to then come back and reinvent themselves again. That's so maybe true. it's like the idea of trying to defend their legacy, rewrite their legacy? Maybe. Um, or, or, yeah, probably rewrite their legacy. Yeah. They don't want to be known as a lame duck president? Yes. Right? And when you think of Martin Van Buren, I mean— or do you ever think of Martin Van Buren? <laughs> Honestly, I teach this stuff for a living, and I don't, you know, there's no pictures of Van Buren hanging on my wall. I mean, no, I'm not, and, and you know. there probably aren't many places else. It's the funky sideburns, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a national park for him somewhere near Albany, uh, New York, or a, a memorial for him where he was from. Um, but Martin Van Buren, 
you know, maybe he's one of those presidents that just is is kind of transitional. Just yeah, to I like carry that. us through to the mm-hmm. next one. Yes. Because when next week when we get into William Henry Harrison and, and John Tyler, you know, that that'll that'll open up a whole nother Yes. Um, scenario of, of where America goes politically. Yes. It's almost like when you're writing a, a book or, or a long paper and you have those transitional like paragraphs yes. or transitional sections where they're not the stars, but they're relaying the background for what is to come because you can't just have punchy, 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 unless you're Hemingway. That's how he writes. Yes. Right? But otherwise you can't have just punchy, punchy. It's a transitional. And I think sometimes in the presidential sphere, there's like you said, those transitional presidents. Yeah. And it's almost as if Van Buren desired to hold the status quo more than anything else. He didn't want to really be exceptional in anything. It's just like... Well, I don't recall he was ever in the military. I don't recall he that he was never, you know, athletic. I mean, he's a five foot six. And when you and, and all his predecessors were, you know, with the exception of John Quincy Adams, were, were pretty much, uh, you know, feisty men. Yes. I mean, not that John Powerful Quincy Adams man. wasn't, but yeah. Um, and Van Buren, they said that he was just likable and nice and kind, which there's, there's nothing wrong. Please don't mistake me. Like, we need some kindness in politics, right? Like, absolutely. we really need some kindness in politics. Humility wouldn't hurt either. Oh, imagine that, right? <laughs> Humility wears well on everyone, yes. right? So he, he had those things going for him. He didn't have that just that drive in him that you expect out of a president. He had always kind of played second fiddle. In fact, there was a, there was a really famous quote by a newspaper in the 1800s that said, when, um, when Andrew Jackson dances, Van Buren plays the fiddle. <laughs> And I thought that was really interesting. That but is it, good. He was always the guy in the background, just kind of playing the fiddle. And then now he's like taking the number one seat. And I don't know if he necessarily had the personality for the number one seat. He probably didn't. I don't think he had the the, the, the experience uh, yeah. as a leader. Yes. Uh, he was a very learned man. Don't get me wrong. Very. But you can be learned and not have any experience mm. and be totally ineffective. Absolutely. And, and I think that's what happened, especially with the Panic of 1837. You know, the first major financial crisis, the banks are going under. Mm. He has no idea what to do. Yes. Uh, and without a central bank, it's very difficult to do anything, yes. as we're seeing today. Well, going back to his Tex- the Texas affair, um, the Alamo, the, the stand of the Alamo takes place a year before he comes into office. It happens mm-hmm. 1836, he comes into office. And, and you wonder if he would have brought Texas into the Union then when they asked for it, would that have prevented the Mexican-American War? Would that have yeah. been a, a game changer in the Mexican-American War? We don't know. Like, inaction, was it, was it Eisenhower who made the statement? Uh, or was it MacArthur? Made, and one, one of the generals of war to made the statement that the, the number one mistake in all war is delay. Wow. Delay in action. Delay in fighting, delay in responding, delay in building up for ahead of this. And if anything kind of uh, is, 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 is explanation of, of, of Van Buren's presidency, he believed strongly in delay. He was reactionary. Yes, and not proactive. Instead of being proactive. So I, I witnessed the same thing when I was in Congress. You know, we had a Republican majority uh, and, and we were not proactive. We were reacting to every little crisis that the Obama administration wanted to throw at us. Uh, and unfortunately, we ended up losing a majority because we just reacted. We played a yeah. prevent defense. We didn't do anything about repeal and replace. I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't even we, we attempted to replace one time. We didn't do anything on immigration. We had the opportunity, but we delayed it. Yeah. And I remember our leadership telling me, don't worry, we're going to have our day. We're going to have our day to fight. And they never had our day to fight. So it, I think it also transcends into the political realm as it does from the military realm that that one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to delay. Yes. And I got to give uh, Obama a lot of credit as as president, not because of his policies, of which many of them I disagree with, but mm. the fact that he took action. He was very he proactive. Took, he was, took action on everything from, from health care to, uh, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act and the yes. financial services arena. 
it cost him his majority yes. uh, in Congress, but try to undo that. Right, exactly. It makes you know? me think about a football game and that momentum once it gets going. And if you're just back on your heels playing defense the entire time, it's really hard to actually get the momentum and the field advantage back where you can actually start playing a credible offense. Yes. And not only is that simply a sports metaphor, but I do believe we see that in politics as well. And as you said, the Obama administration is perfect. They were playing such hard offense. Oh, amazing. That a lot of times Republicans were just on their heels just trying to make goal yard stands the entire yeah. time instead of actually being able to mount an offensive comeback, if you will. And just they just wear you down. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the faith of Van Buren, I found this interesting. He, he, he didn't really talk a whole lot uh, about his faith, but he was Dutch Reformed. Yes. Because um, he grew up actually speaking Dutch as his primary language, then English secondly. But when he was in uh, D.C., he would go to St. John's Episcopal Church, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you've probably oh, yes. been several times. Oh, yes. We, uh, we take students there, too. Yes. Because, I mean, it is the the political oh, yes. what mecca of, of religion, if you will. Um, in D.C. He made this right statement, there, yeah. though, at the end of his life. I thought it was really interesting. The atonement of Jesus Christ is the only remedy and rest for my soul. Wow. And I, I think this speaks a lot, and again, I, I know I have a pastor's heart, but I think it speaks a lot of these founding fathers, whether or not we, we agreed with their, all their politics, whether or not we really liked them, whatever that may be, they were men of faith. They were. And I think the older they got and the more power that they exercised, they realized uh, their own mortality. Yes. And that there had to have been a hereafter. Yes. And, and in order to get there, you have to, you have to submit to faith. Yes. And, I think about Washington, our first podcast, and he had that silver plaque yes. on, his, on his coffin, Rise to Judgment, that sense of accountability. And I think that's almost one thing that's really wrong with our political—well, one of the things that's wrong with our political system today is because there's no longer a belief in a supreme being in God who holds people accountable, the, the accountability is gone. There there's is no lot, longer a yeah. rise to judgment. So because that, I can do whatever I want to. It's unfortunate, but you're right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's it, personal responsibility. I used to tell people that the one law we had to pass, only law we ever had to pass was that if you don't exercise personal responsibility, then you go to jail. <laughs> Okay? Because in whatever dealings you may be doing, you have to exercise personal responsibility, which means I have to look out for your interests right. as well as my interests. That's right. And if, you can't legislate. My point is you can't legislate personal responsibility. Right. It is inherent in moral values, and moral values come from religious beliefs from, from, from the Bible. In, in my long career working a million different jobs, one of the, I was actually was going to go be a firefighter at one point. I remember going to the academy, and I remember they had, an, they had a statement in the academy, discipline yourself so someone else doesn't have to. Wow. It's kind of government in a nutshell. Discipline yourself so someone else doesn't have to. Let's practice that. <laughs> Let's have that like in the Capitol building. Yeah. Discipline yourself so someone else doesn't have to. Like, and, and, and you're not being cold about that because the one thing about our nation and our founders believed in is that we will always take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. That's right. That's and, right. And, and, and I think that has been a great function of government, continues yes. to be, but it has also led to taking care of those who are perfectly capable, okay, capable of taking care of themselves. <laughs> yes. But, uh, anyway, yes. Martin Van Buren was a wonderful... Yes, and a little a, discussion again. And next week we're going to combine uh, two presidencies together because I mean we can't talk about a forty-five forty-five day president. Forty-five day president, yeah. Uh, Longwoodness does not uh, help your longevity. <laughs> no, no it really doesn't. So this has been Martin Van Buren. Looking forward to next week as we do our first double header. Right, that's right. If it Look counts to it. as a double header. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. Thank you.